News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the first one was uh, really something, to put it mildly. And now the second debate is up tonight between U.S. President Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee for President Joe Biden, set to get underway at 6 o'clock our time. So should we try watching it? Well, let's ask our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, about that. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So should we try this or is it going to be just like the last one? Well, I mean, look, there are measures in place to try and make it not like the last one, uh, including muted microphones. There will be uh, kind of pandemic safety measures on stage with plexiglass separating the two candidates. Uh, so there are going to be differences that we can see. And we've also been told from inside the White House that the president may try to tone down his bombast. So that could also be something uh, that makes it you know, a little easier for some people to watch. Interesting. OK, so then what is the format? The format's going to be just like the first debate. They skipped that town hall to do their own individual town hall. So this is going to be a moderator from NBC, again, holding out six different categories for each person to be able to speak about. They'll get two minutes of uninterrupted time off the top. We've been told that the president is going to try to go really key after Joe Biden's family as a way to try and drum up some support with inside his base. Critics say that that could backfire on the president because he needs to get a message across to the people who are not in his base, notably suburban women and voters in the suburbs. So the tone and the the way that the the president brings up rhetoric that really is going to kind of set the pace for this debate yeah that doesn't make any sense to me because he doesn't need to rile up the base the base is going to vote for him yeah, the base is already there. And the thing with with Democrats is the base is already there with Joe Biden. So really, it's this last ditch effort to try and draw people in that weren't there in the first place, especially with tens of millions of people still having yet to cast a ballot. It means that there are minds still to be made up. So this is that opportunity to put a performance out there that somebody may not have seen. It's just hard to do that when you've been right. somebody for four years or 40 years. Now, I'm taking a look too at those advanced ballots. As you mentioned, there are quite a few states are noticing that uh, a huge amount of people have already voted. Yes, there have been, uh, you know, more than 30 million ballots cast already. It's roughly 20% of what was voted uh, cast entirely in 2016. Uh, the Democrats had the kind of early uh, advantage here with trying to get as many people out as they can. Republicans starting to narrow that gap, especially with registration. But there is still several days left. There are still tens of millions of ballots to cast. So what we see right now might not be truly indicative of what happens November 3rd. Okay, so what do you think we're going to see this next couple of weeks? Will a lot of it you think be determined by what happens tonight? This seems to be uh, a last effort for Donald Trump to gain back some people who might have thought they're not voting for him. Yeah, look, it's not clear how much this is going to move the needle over the next two weeks. There's still an opportunity for these candidates to visit states. I think what's going to be more important after this debate is how each of these candidates looks at the battleground states, notably Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. They're all incredibly important if either of these two men want to win. They're more difficult for Donald Trump because he's trailing right now. But the battleground states right now have the smallest margins for the lead for Joe Biden. So it's really how they talk to the voters in those three states, which could become make or break over the next three uh, two weeks. Is that why? the Biden-Harris campaign sent out uh, the big guns yesterday to Pennsylvania. We saw Barack Obama for the first time. Yeah, that is the most powerful tool they have in their war chest right now. And they know that Barack Obama is able to uh, motivate uh, the base to get out and vote. He won Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia in his final term uh, by incredible margins in some of the counties by 99% of Whoa. the vote. So this is an opportunity for him to say, look, especially to the black community that did not come out for Hillary Clinton, don't be complacent. Don't do a repeat of 2016. You've seen what happened over the last four years. Barack Obama's words matter and the Democrats know that. Yeah, it, he certainly seemed to to be very he was way more pointed in his comments yesterday than we have ever heard him before yeah and you know what it's it follows a trend past presidents try not to get in the way of sitting presidents but on an election campaign when there's so much on the line and when the stakes are high they come out and they give what they've seen over the last four years and compare that to what they did over four or eight years so to have barack obama out there saying look things have failed things aren't going well the the, the pandemic is serious and the republican president is not taking it seriously those are things that matter to the people that have been impacted most and that's why he was out there on the stump stumping for his former number two. Oh man reggie how much longer till this is all over we have 12 days until this is over, but it could be much, much longer than that. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know if there's going to be uh, any kind of fight from the Republicans if Donald Trump decides that, uh, you know, the election could potentially be rigged against him. It's two weeks, less than two weeks to Election Day. It could be several weeks after that before we either get an outcome or before we actually see something happen before the inauguration. Oh, man. OK, Reggie, thank you. 
Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. So tonight is technically the second debate uh, between U.S. President Donald Trump and the nominee on the Democratic side, Joe Biden. Remember, they were supposed to have three in total, but the second one got canceled because of the COVID-19 diagnosis. So they had dueling town halls instead. So tonight is the second and last debate, we should say. Gets underway at six o'clock our time. This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard not to think about the holidays that are coming because they're everywhere. I was uh, grocery shopping the other day, and of course, it's already all sorts of Christmas stuff that are in the stores. So yeah, in the back of my mind, I'm starting to think about holiday shopping. How am I actually going to do it the way I did it last year? Am I going to order everything online? How much am I going to spend? Well, it turns out Deloitte Canada also did some of this research to find out how people will buy presents and all sorts of things over the next few months. And to find out more about what it is that we said, National Retail Leader for Deloitte, Marty Weintraub, joins us now. Marty, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Okay, so what do we know about retail spending? What are Canadians planning to do? Well, I hate to be the bearer of some some worse news, uh, but uh, holiday spending uh, per our study is going to be down about 18% this year. So Canadians have told us they'll spend an average of about $1,400 relative to about $1,700 last year. Really? So is that like when we ask this question every year, do people think they're going to spend less money and then they don't? Or does this, are they honest about it? Yeah, it's usually, it's usually pretty honest. I mean, it's pretty hard to go back and, and track again. Uh, but uh, in our experience, it stays pretty close to what they tell us because of the timing. We're only about, you know, three, four weeks away from the core shopping season. So by now, most have planned their budgets and thought about what they're going to buy. Now, this year might be a little bit different, obviously, but in general, it's pretty accurate. Okay, so where are we going to cut back? Yeah, so the biggest areas of cutback, to no surprise, will be travel and entertainment. So uh, that is included in most people's holiday budget. So because we're going to be staying at home and more likely eating at home, there'll be less you know, money spent on dining out and doing holiday parties and, of course, traveling. Interesting. You know, I guess the other thing I find fascinating about this is that, like, it seemed like retail spending was doing okay over the last couple of months. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're right. Um, Obviously, we had a big dip in economic activity through spring-summer. We did have a bit of a bounce back and some strong spending through the late summer. But even the most recent data that's starting to come out as recently as yesterday and the day before uh, from Stats Can is showing extreme pressure and headwinds on spend. So we're already starting to see a slowdown, and we do expect that to continue into the new year. In fact, in our survey, when we asked Canadians about their confidence and outlook for the economy, about 56% of them said that we're expecting the economy to weaken through 2020, which we've been hearing and we know will likely be the case. And as well, about a third of Canadians expect to be personally and financially worse off in 2020. And that's a big change from last year. Yeah, so it sounds like consumer confidence is on the weak side. It is. Okay, so are they still giving money to charity, though? Well, you know, that is actually one of the bright lights at the end of this uh, sort of slowdown in spending and the 18% reduction I mentioned, the one category of spending, which again is included in budgets, is actually charitable giving. And that's a whopping 86% higher than last year, about $160 of that $1,400. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, obviously, with the challenging times we've had, uh, we've seen sort of a focus on community and helping each other, at least here in Canada, has mm-hmm. been a, and a really important thing. So that's it's a big increase, but not surprising uh, at this time. So have Canadians thought about then where they're going to do their shopping? Are they going to go to the mall? Are they going to do it online? Yeah, so it'll be obviously no surprise that a lot of shopping will move to digital and e-commerce. Uh, you know, so 47% of shoppers are saying they're going to you know, shop more online this year than last year. That'll be true for holiday season. Uh, mall traffic, you know, it'll be a little bit better than it has been, um, but it will be challenged. Only about half of Canadians, a little more than half, are still comfortable or say they're comfortable going out to physical stores. So we're going to see a, a massive boost online. And as a result, we may see some pressure on delivery capacity to execute all those orders through this crunch. Do you think we'll see some of those big sales, Marty? Like, will we get the Black Friday? Will we get all that pre-holiday shopping stuff? Yeah, I think we absolutely will. I mean, this year, because of all the pressures and everything we've been talking about, uh, you know, bargain hunting and deal hunting is top of mind for Canadians right now. And so I expect retailers, now, it'll probably vary by sector. I mean, we have some parts of retail that have been disproportionately hurt by the pandemic. So, you know, apparel and clothing and and footwear, um, unlike, you know, for home and essentials and things we've been buying. So I think uh, sales will not be, 
equally spread across all categories, but definitely we'll see a pretty promotional holiday period. And so when people say they're going to shop online, do they know where they're going to shop online? Like, have they decided which retailers they're going to be, you know, buying from? Yeah, you know, the big change, the big change we saw this year is Amazon. You know, we saw Amazon being strong last year, but store shopping as sort of the point of origin to do my browsing was number one last year. This year, Amazon came up on top where 66% of Canadians said they will start their browsing and shopping on Amazon specifically. And in stores, that dropped down to just over 50%. And that was literally almost the reverse last year. So it's a pretty big flip. And so if uh, if you're competing against Amazon out there, this will be a tough season. And, you know, your digital and omni-channel uh, and all the ways you engage with yeah. consumers online will be so important. All right, Marty, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Marty Weintraub, National Retail Leader at Deloitte Canada, asking Canadians about their shopping. Now, the Amazon thing, I mean, I know people love it. I do. But there's so many local businesses right now that need your support. Think about all the people that work there. And if you don't want to go into the stores, understandable. Uh, a lot of them do curbside pickup. I've seen a ton of stores that you can order online and then just swing by and, and pick it up. And that might be easy for you to do. But I think... A lot of local stores and retail shops would really prefer you to buy as, as locally as you possibly can this holiday season. Uh, the highlight, though, of this is that Canadians are already saying they're going to be spending less money on their holiday shopping this year. They said holiday spending expected to fall by 18%. One in three Canadians expected to reduce their spending on the holidays down to an average of about $1,405 for the season. And they said the areas that are going to take the biggest brunt of the spending cuts, travel, dining out, and alcohol. This is Mornings with Simi. Here we were last segment talking about holiday shopping. I mean, hello, Halloween is coming up. That's what we have to talk about. That's why we have Nikki Reitmeyer with us this morning. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, that's truly what got me thinking of it. I knew you were going to be speaking to your last guest. And then I just had Halloween on the brain and I started coming across all of these local, we could say, Halloween themed stories that I wanted to share with you today. Oh, I love it. Let's do this. Okay, well, first and foremost, if you are a big fan of Halloween, you like to drive from home to home to see, you know, kind of what displays people have put up. And that is a COVID safe activity this year that you can do for Halloween. Maybe you want to head up to the North Shore. Up in North Vancouver, there's a guy named Jeff. And in his front yard, you will see a 923 pound pumpkin. What? How did he grow this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's on display in his front yard. In fact, to move it into his front yard, he had to call in a crane to get this thing moved. That's, That's crazy. just how big this pumpkin is. He named the pumpkin Muriel. And to answer your question, he sourced the seeds from a TV meteorologist, I guess, who's also a competitive pumpkin grower, who lives in Maine. And the seeds that, that the pumpkin came from is a 16 hundred pound pumpkin. So I suppose this is something similar to, you know, like studying a racehorse. This is kind of what it's reminding me of. We have all these competitive pumpkin growers and, you know, one pumpkin grows massive in size. So then a bunch of other competitive pumpkin growers, they want to buy the seeds for that pumpkin. So I guess like you can actually make some money doing this, right? If you grow one huge pumpkin, then you can sell those seeds all over the world. Well, yeah, interestingly enough, that's exactly what this guy Jeff on the North Shore plans on doing. He said that, you know, one big old Muriel in his front yard starts to turn into a big old pile of mush, he's going to <laughs> compost, you know, most of it. However, the seeds are going to get sold off all around the world to other competitive pumpkin growers. So he said that already he has buyers lined up in Japan, in Korea, France, wow. in the United Kingdom, and of course, all across Canada as well. You know, Nikki, sometimes there's a story that comes along in the news that makes me realize, well, there's a whole world, a whole group of people out there that I know nothing about. And I would say competitive Competitive vegetable growing is probably one of those areas. <laughs> it's true because I always think of, you know, when you see a story in the news about, you know, little Aunt Susie who's 90 years old grew a zucchini that's 45 pounds yeah. in size. And it's just, you know, and then you, they, the news goes and they interview her and the, the story that they get is always something to the effect of, oh, you know, I just, I just use the right soil and lo and behold, this year I just happened to get this massive zucchini or whatever. I love but, it. 
there is this world of competitive vegetable growing and pumpkins certainly fall into that category. There was actually supposed to be the great pumpkin Commonwealth competition held in Langley this year. And normally that's what Jeff competes in. But the pandemic, of course, put a stop to that competition this year. So instead he said, well, look, I've got this massive pumpkin that I've been growing. I might as well hire a carver to come out, carve the pumpkin for me, and I can put it on display in my yard where my neighbors can at least enjoy it. Huge. I'm sure there's going to be some pumpkin carving going on at my house this weekend for sure, because now is the time to be doing Do you do that? Do you look forward to that? I probably won't cover a pumpkin this year. Um, it's it's not as fun when it's just you sitting alone with a glass of wine carving a pumpkin in your apartment. <laughs> you can come to my house, Nikki, because that oh. sounded really sad, that picture that you just painted yeah. there. It's dark. <laughs> Plus, yeah. I live in an apartment. You need so, to come to know, my house. The, okay. do you, well, what do you do if you live in an apartment? Do you put them on the patio? Sure. I guess so. That'd be kind of cute, wouldn't it? Okay, yeah. I'm convinced. Maybe I will par- carve a pumpkin this year. After but you in the spirit, fun. it's just something to do. And I think one of the th- you know one of the things that's so important about 2020 is to just do those things that we would normally do mm. because I think it makes us feel a little bit better. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, keeping up some of those holiday traditions yeah. that we enjoy, and you, pumpkin carving certainly being one of those, any baking related to the Halloween season. And I, I last night with a friend, I went for a walk and just looked at Halloween displays. Exactly. It was really nice. right? I was really relieved. I wasn't sure how our neighborhood was going to deal with Halloween because we have a lot of small children, like a lot of kids in our neighborhood, which is great. Right. And I was yeah. like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. And I, I felt a sense of relief over the last week or so when I saw that all the usual houses that put out the big Halloween decorations had gone ahead and done that. So there's a yeah. house on the corner that just goes all out. Like every inflatable that is for sale that is related to Halloween is on this guy's front lawn, right? Every zombie, <laughs> every ghost, every you name yeah. it, this person has it. And I actually felt like, oh, good. Like I almost wanted to knock on the door and say, thank you uh, for doing that. So yeah, it's nice to see that usual stuff happen. Well, here's something a little unusual that happened that hopefully doesn't become a Halloween tradition. A fellow out in Chilliwack said that he woke up in the night to the sound of screaming on Friday, October 16th. He didn't know what was going on until he checked his video security footage the next day. And what he saw was the was a naked man running through the streets who had stolen his pumpkins off his front yard. This is like the movie Old School. Was it Vince Vaughn? Literally Literally something out of the movie Old School. He said, we had the guy who ran in his bike theft to to get his bike back. So I guess there were some worries that, you know, some bizarre incidents had been occurring lately, hence why he was checking all the video footage, but then found instead a naked man carrying a pumpkin running through the neighborhood streets. You don't know what happens in your neighborhood after you go to sleep, right? You don't know what's going on at that neighbor's house. (laughs) Well, hopefully not that oh, <laughs> but you never yes. know and, and hopefully it doesn't become a halloween tradition yeah let's not make it that all right thank you very much for that nikki thanks simi this is mornings with simi if you are a small business owner, you need to listen up because we have the details for you right now on a new grant program that could provide some thousands of dollars for your business uh, from the federal government. So earlier this morning, we managed to catch up with Small Business Minister Mary Eng to explain to us what is going on and how this works. Well, Minister Eng, thank you for joining us to talk about this this morning. Okay, tell us a bit about this grant program. Absolutely. Um, particularly happy to do so in the midst of Small Business Week, where normally I'd be crisscrossing the country meeting so many businesses in person. And this year we're doing it, uh, celebrating their resilience a little differently, uh, virtually across the country. So uh, just this week, I launched a $12 million investment for the Canada United Small Business Resilience, or rather Relief Fund. And what this is, is it's up to five thousand dollars in grants for businesses, uh, small businesses that are of less than 75 employees. And, uh, and it will, it's a partnership with the Chambers of Commerce. So uh, while the Ontario Chamber is uh, the online portal that will manage it, if you will, it is absolutely available to businesses all across the country and certainly there in British Columbia. Okay, so what are the, is it just businesses with 75 employees or what else do they need to know? 
It is businesses that are up to 75 employees that have $150,000 or less in, uh, in, in sales and revenue. So really those small businesses. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's up to $5,000. And what does it pay for? It pays for things like PPE, which we know businesses, uh, are, are buying and costing and, and, and incurring the cost, making some adjustments, uh, in response to public health measures to make their, uh, premises safe for themselves, for their employees, for their customers, but also to help uh, with some additional funding, perhaps to go digital so that they could take advantage of e-commerce opportunities should they wish to do so. So that's uh, that's what it pays for. It's up to $5,000. And, um, and this is a terrific partnership that we're very happy to enter into with the chambers and how this started. Canada United started with an initiative uh, by the Royal Bank of Canada where they pulled together many private sector partners as well as the chambers where we all as Team Canada are just focused on helping our Canadian small businesses. So I guess these businesses are also becoming quite adept at having to navigate, right, the government bureaucracy with all the different programs too. Was it important to make this as easy as possible for businesses? Well, I would say that it's always important to make it, uh, to try to make it as easy as possible because I know how, um, I know how challenging it is for small businesses and that they don't have that additional flexibility to navigate too much complexity. Um, we are trying and we have been always uh, considering that in mind to make sure that when they get access to the small business loan, as an example, to make it as easy as possible by going to your financial institution or our wage subsidy program or um, or our rent uh, subsidy program, which now, of course, will be available directly to the tenants. This one here today, though, is uh, is a partnership with the Chamber. So if you go to the online portal uh, through the Chamber of Commerce, then they will uh, they will administer it. And, and again, this is our effort to try to do many, many things. So it isn't just one thing or the other. There are, of course, a suite of government programs, but absolutely finding partners who are close to business, and who can be responsive to business is uh, is also what this is. Okay, when will this be available? The portal opens on Monday, the 26th. Okay, so then if people, they should mark that on their calendar and get ready to do this. Indeed. Okay, good to know. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you so much and uh, happy Small Business Week. That is the Minister Responsible for Small Businesses, uh, Mary Ng. Uh, Just a quick correction, though, from what she told us. Now, this grant, which is about $12 million available to businesses, I think it's up to $5,000, she said. But she also said that the revenue has to be under 150 k No, that's not the case. She misspoke. Uh, It is is available to businesses with revenue exceeding $150,000. The only thing is really that you have to have up to 75 employees. So 75 and less, uh, you can apply for this starting Monday. And you know what? It's a couple of thousand dollars that'll help small businesses out for whatever you need. So we thought, important to get that out there, right? So starting Monday, check out the portal online. You can get some money to help you with your buying PPE or whatever it is that you need for your business. This is Mornings with Simi. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Deputy Health Minister Stephen Brown released in a statement saying many of the new cases and community clusters of COVID-19 are directly connected to weddings, funerals and celebrations of life. Weddings, funerals and celebrations of life. That's what people have been doing to lead us to this record number of 203 cases of COVID-19 in a 24-hour period here in B.C., What's so disappointing about that is that it seemed like our numbers had kind of been holding steady, trending, going in the right direction for weeks now. So where did we go wrong? I look at the calendar and you think, did something happen a couple of weeks ago? Well, there was Thanksgiving. Perhaps we were looser with the rules and recommendations than we should have been. Is that leading us to where we are? So let's break them down. Joining us now is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection and Public Health, uh, Carolyn Colane. Caroline, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. So what did you make out of those numbers when you heard them yesterday? Well, obviously they're higher than we want. Um, 200 is still within the error bounds in, in the modeling. So, you know, the noises are, sorry, the, the data is always going up and, ja- up and down and there's always a little bit of noise and jumpiness and that's, you know, 200 is not actually outside the range where we would say, oh, wow, like our models were wrong. Something really weird is going on. 
but it is higher than than we want it to be for sure. And I hope it doesn't sustain, you know, into today, tomorrow and, and into next week, obviously. Yeah, I was reading an article yesterday about how BC, had, we seem to have this attitude of low and slow right? That if we could keep it at like between 100 and 150, and we've been doing that for weeks and weeks, and perhaps what, did we get too comfortable with that a little bit? Right. I mean, these systems, there's a knife edge, right? And that's just because fundamentally a a case is risking producing more cases. So it's not like maintaining a constant level of car accidents or having an even level of, you know, fruit intake in your diet. Because when you eat an apple, you know, it's nice, you you get full, you have an apple, it doesn't actually make you eat more apples. And then each one of those makes you eat more apples. And, you know, so maintaining a constant ish number of apples is, is reasonable, but infectious disease is not like that. And so we shouldn't, you know, assume that there's kind of some really natural equilibrium and BC is just a 150 a day place. And that's just what it is in BC. That's not how viruses work. So I think there's, you know, there's a risk that with our slow exponential growth, we can just get complacent and not see it as exponential growth. But the signs are that this virus transmits in BC much like it does everywhere else at indoor gatherings, dining, eating, drinking, partying, inside, crowded, those kinds of environments. And is that what you think we have been doing? Well, I mean, we we all dine inside, uh, especially in the winter. Um, so I don't know the, the details, and they, they don't make these public about where transmission is thought to be happening. It's hard to know because people are doing various things. So when someone comes, you know, they do the contact tracing and they look, oh, you were both at the same wedding or you were both at the same funeral. Uh, but, of course, people who are at the same wedding may know each other, so and they may see each other outside the wedding. So we can't always tell. And also, you know, you just get different outbreaks in different places because it's kind of random. Sometimes it'll be in a bar. Sometimes it'll be in a restaurant. Sometimes it'll be there was a 7-Eleven way back when, when there were some exposures. There's, uh, you know, it'll just kind of move around in different pockets. So I think, you know, we are obviously congregating indoors together. And those are places where the virus can transmit. Right. So what when you look at the numbers and the entire kind of dashboard of where we are at, where's the good and the bad? Are there things that we can look to to say, okay, we're still not as bad off? Well, we're not as badly off as some places, and that's great uh, um, for us. I guess it's not good for the places. Um, so our doubling time right now is at about 38 days, which is, you know, a nice long time before we would see 400 cases a day if 200 is really the, you know, if it was really the, the mean right now. Um but, you know, 40 days are going to go by. So that's great that we're not doubling every 10 days or every five days, because then we'd have a much deeper rise to worry about. So I guess that's good. I do think it's a concern that it, that it's on the rise. And I think we've had a bit of complacency in BC where we've kind of thought, oh, you know, we're special. We're outside. We're yeah. north of the border. We're west of the Rockies. And I think we're not that special. We can still get this virus and it can still threaten our healthcare systems. And it's something to be worried about. Okay, so what about the school outbreak, right? I think that concerned a lot of people too. We've been waiting to see how the school thing is going to go. And now we have our first school outbreak, three cases, one school, Kelowna, and now you've got 160 people self-isolating. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's frustrating because we knew there would be exposures in schools. We blogged about it in um, August. I have a preprint that came out this morning about schools, you know, we know that there would be exposures in schools, and I think we knew enough to know that transmission could happen in schools, but often transmission doesn't happen. There are a lot of exposures, even in adults, that don't lead to onward transmission. And then some do, and those are the the unfortunate events, the unlucky um, moments at the weddings or, or wherever. And I think there's, you know, children may be less susceptible and less less infectious, but, you know, they're not in, unable to get covid um, I think the notion of outbreak is something jurisdictions get to pick. And, you know, there was a report a few weeks ago uh, in West Van and the West Van News about nine of 16 kids in the same elementary class testing positive. You know, some people would say, well, that's an outbreak. But, you know, jurisdictions get to say, no, 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 it's not an outbreak unless I'm like dead certain that there's ongoing transmission in the setting and I don't know what's happening and I need to shut it down and Whatever. So, I mean, I think we've seen it. It's been going on. There's great data from Quebec. There's data from Ontario. There's a school in Manitoba. So I'm not surprised at all. I, I'm a little bit 
wary of how BC is is so guarded about using the special word outbreak when, you know, we know school exposures and clusters are probably happening and they've happened elsewhere in Canada and elsewhere in the world. And we're not, again, we're not immune here because we're in BC. Right. Do you think, we start to think that, right? That, oh, we managed, we've done a good job, but every time we think we've done a good job, the numbers go up. Right. And we have done a good job. You know, we have strong public health. We have contact tracing. We have trust in our government's messaging. And we should have that trust because basically they've done a fantastic job. On the other hand, we shouldn't get complacent and think, oh, you know, everything's fine here because here, you know, there's nothing. We're not magic unicorns here by virtue of being physically here. So I think that is a risk. And I think schools are obviously a hot topic because they affect so many people and they're so important um, and we will have to figure out how to manage even the higher risk. And even if most exposures don't lead anywhere, if you keep growing, eventually you're going to get unlucky. And I think uh, we need to be on guard for that. Yeah. So you think then, Caroline, like a, a word of advice then to British Columbians out there, cut it, cut it out with these weddings and everything. Yeah, maybe one event in a, in a week instead of three if, if you're going to three. Or maybe just think about like how many different people would have to know who you are and phone you if and have you phoned yeah. if they got sick or how many would you have to have phoned? If that number is 50, that's going to place a burden on the people trying to do that tracing and that's going to be hard and it's going to be slower for them to reach you or for you to reach them. Oh, that's good. Good warning on that. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you know the weather is changing because we're talking to Mark Madriga right now. He's our global news meteorologist and he's with us. We love it when the weather changes so we can talk to you, Mark. Well, I love it too. It's just a little early to be talking about all this snow that I'm going to uh, talk about in just a second or two. It's crazy. It's only, uh, well, I call it mid-October. I guess it's getting to be late October. But yeah, let's talk snow, Simi. Okay, let's do this. I know people love to say winter is coming now because of Game of Thrones, but in this case, it's true. It is coming. It, it is very early to have this type of Arctic outbreak, and uh, the cold air has been bottled up mostly in northern BC for a few days, way below average temperatures for this time of year. That cold air is on the way. Uh, also, a weather system is going to clash with that colder air starting early tomorrow morning. So here's the scenario for the lower mainland. We'll have rain kick in a little bit overnight. Uh, by the time uh, we start our shows tomorrow morning, Simi, uh, on radio and TV, uh, we will have some rain in here, and it will be chilly enough with a very low freezing level to probably have a little mixed rain and snow, believe it or not. Uh, even in parts of Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, some of the higher places of Surrey, uh, Coquitlam, the North Shore, the usual spots, SFU, uh, I'm not anticipating anything sticking where people live for snow, but at least a slushy mix of rain and snow tomorrow morning higher up. And snow for the North Shore Mountains for sure tomorrow and lots of it uh, for the ski areas. And the, the big story, if you're traveling to the interior or maybe our list in the interior traveling to the coast tomorrow. That's going to be very messy. Uh, Even in the Hope area, the Fraser Canyon, all the mountain passes uh, will be jammed with snow starting first thing tomorrow morning. Anywhere from 10 to 15 centimeters up there, Simi. Yeah, Yeah. I was seeing some of the video, like the pictures that you were showing as well on Global there, and it looks messy already. Well, today, that's a little left over from yesterday. Today is pretty slack for weather conditions up there, just a chance of a flurry on the passes. It's tomorrow that's the big-time hit of snow. And then for Vancouver, we're going to clear tomorrow night and be sunny and chilly on the weekend with lows near zero and throw in a gusty wind Saturday, making it feel quite chilly, especially for this time of year. So it's a short-term event of rain down low, snow in the mountains, and it hits us tomorrow. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mark. My pleasure. Maybe we'll chat tomorrow when it's all <laughs> happening to all Yeah, right. maybe it's all going to go sideways and there'll be like, you know, a couple of inches of snow for us to talk about. So, all right. Mark, thank you. <laughs> That's ya. Mark Madriga, our global news meteorologist with, yeah, there's sunshine yesterday, but it is chilly, right? You can feel it. Uh, and we are expecting it to be quite chilly over the next couple of days, as he pointed out. But for the good news for you skiers out there, definite snow coming for the North Shore Mountains over the next 24 to 48 hours. And keep it tuned in right here for the very latest on the weather forecast. Was it pandemic hardball to avoid scrutiny or were the Liberals willing to go to an election? 
Yeah, what was all of that about? That's Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. A lot of questions left unanswered right around what happened in Ottawa over the last couple of days. Joining us now with his analysis of the situation is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Sydney. What was all of that about? Like, it just seemed like people weren't kind of paying attention. All of a sudden we thought, should we be paying attention? And then it didn't happen. Actually, you just did a very, <laughs> that's a very good description. <laughs> I mean, Canadians are really, uh, really focused on uh, dealing with things in their own households right now in a very immediate way. Uh, so our perception of what tomorrow is uh, is literally Friday. And we're, we're really, really wondering about whether or not we're going to be able to get our, our, uh, our lives back on track and, and uh, what it is that our public servants are going to be doing to help us do that. So having this very partisan brouhaha broke breakout in Ottawa was uh, maybe attracted a certain amount of attention, but probably only left people confused. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So was it just some big game of political chicken? Absolutely it was. So, uh, you know, obviously the the Prime Minister is trying to get back the narrative that he felt he got back as a result of proroguing the House and and, uh, launching his speech from the throne. Um, and he saw some movement in the polls, um, and we've shown this in the polls that we've been doing for Global as well, that uh, the Liberals have moved up a bit on the Conservatives. So he's looking at the momentum that he has, and he's looking at the fact that he's able to grab back the, grab back the, the narrative about where the country is headed and force that through an election and really, and, and really take advantage of the situation. And the Conservatives were prepared to help him with that with their, you know, we uh, um, uh, investigation proposal. And uh, the NDP uh, stood up and said, we really didn't want it because they're the ones sitting back and saying, uh, you know, uh, we're not really ready to go to the people right now because we're not feeling particularly well prepared for an election campaign. So essentially what you saw break out in Ottawa was pure partisan politics. And yet, did anybody, did any party really stop and think, oh, how, how is this going to go over in the public? Well, it's it's one of those situations when you're in that uh, that fishbowl, and uh, you know ultimately they know that an election campaign is going to happen probably sooner rather than later, um, uh, simply because we're in a minority government situation. That uh, if this thing is going to be triggered, it has to be triggered the right way and for their political advantage. And they're not necessarily thinking about long, the longer term or how this looks from a philosophical level. They're 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 just trying to kick things off to their advantage uh, through some form of an election call, which you know appears more eminent now than even it did yesterday, I would say. But um, uh, no, I, it's, it really is probably the perception in the rest of the country is a pox on all their houses. Why do you think it appears more imminent now? Because the uh, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the Liberal Party is really feeling its oats. It's feeling that it's got an advantage. Uh, it's knowing that it's got uh, the Conservative Party somewhat confused uh, because obviously they, uh, they they back down to a certain extent from some of their threat. Uh, and they also know that the NDP is afraid to go to the people. Um, so they're, they're going to have to work extra hard to <laughs> engineer going because they know they've got a lead. They certainly have a better lead now than they had going into the last election campaign when they were forced to go into an election simply because of the election law. But um, uh, they're, they're, he's, he's clearly feeling like he has an advantage right now. And by he, I mean the Prime Minister. So you're, you think that because of everything that happened, the game of chicken and who blinked, that the Liberals now feel that they're in the driver's seat on this thing? Yeah, they, they, uh, they, they took a look at their opposition and saw, you know, from the Conservative Party that, uh, for example, that uh, they said, gee, we wanted to take control of Parliament, but, you know, we're not really willing to have an election over it. And, you know, there's no reason that we need to have one rather than them saying, if that's what's going to happen, we should we should really let's go to it. And you had the NDP who basically rolled over for nothing. So they may make these loud noises about, you know, we're going to stick keep working so we can get advantages for the public. What advantages did they get out of yesterday? Boy, it, this astounds me, though, Daryl, because like, yeah, they can do all this all they want to, right? Like they can plot and plan and whatever. But if they actually left Ottawa and went out and talked to some people, I mean, I think there's a lot of Canadians out there who would be outraged that because of political machinations, we ended up with an election. Yeah, uh, and that's the danger here. I mean, I think the prime minister could be looking across the Ottawa River and seeing this sheet of ice that he can skate across to victory on the other side. 
but that's pretty thin ice. It certainly is. Okay, so what do you think now is going to happen over the next couple of months now, given this new power dynamic? Uh, I think the Liberals are going to start getting more aggressive in terms of what they want to do relative to their uh, their uh, uh, the recovery planning. I think they're going to be provoking the opposition as much as they can. Uh, I, if particularly if they if the uh, the result of the polling that you see out of what happened yesterday is that the leak grows even more. If that's the case, as people start anticipating that there might be an election and the leak grows even more, the desire to go will get stronger. So, do you think they're actually thinking that? Listen, we did a good job during this pandemic, therefore people will reward us. Yes, is that it is that simple. <laughs> They don't understand no, what they, they don't understand how fickle people can be. No, they do not, uh, and and they've also got other evidence working in their in their favor. I mean, you're living in a province right now where the reason for for having an election is you know even more difficult to fathom, um, and it looks like the Oregon government, based on the polling we've been doing for for global national global news. Uh, is uh, it shows that he's quite comfortable and probably going to win a majority. So there's evidence in the country, New Brunswick, now uh, now British Columbia, soon Saskatchewan, that incumbents uh, are getting reelected with stronger uh, stronger mandates than they had uh, previously. Oh, such fascinating times. All right, Daryl, thank you for the analysis this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, breaking down what happened in this last 48 hours in Ottawa. I think a lot of people kind of approached it as I did. Didn't really pay attention to it. Oh, it's just politicians being politicians. And then all of a sudden when I thought, oh, wait, you're telling me there might actually be an election? I started to pay attention to it. Couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. And then yesterday, oh, there's not going to be an election. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. That was just a big game of chicken in this kind of power maneuvering that they are doing in Ottawa. You really underestimate sometimes the Canadian public on that kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you think you like Halloween and you want to find a way to make it happen? Well, allow us to introduce you to our next guest. He has got some ideas to help people who live in seniors' homes who generally love Halloween, right? Giving candy to little kids and seeing all that happen. To anybody who wants to do this in a socially distant kind of way. We caught up to him yesterday to get some advice. Have a listen. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us to talk about this this morning. Tell me, do you just love Halloween, Matt? Absolutely, I do. Okay, so what are you doing to make sure we still have Halloween? Well, uh, me and my kids have been uh, building some candy dispensers to try to uh, help have the middle ground uh, for for to show people that you know they don't have to stay inside to um, you know stay safe during the pandemic. They can still go out as long as they just take the necessary precautions. Okay, so where did you get the idea to do this? So uh, I got it. Kind of started with. Uh, just putting together that PVC pipe candy dispenser just to kind of show, again, people just how to uh, find different ways that they can still do trick-or-treating. And then uh, I noticed that not a lot of people were um, having that middle ground. uh, Sorry, they weren't finding ways to to help include everybody. Um, So I started to look for ways that I could include uh, the seniors because I I figured they're probably one of the most uh, overlooked group of people during Halloween because usually, you know, they would have the kids that would come through their senior centers, have a little bit of interaction. Um, But uh, that's obviously not happening this year. So um, I I wanted to uh, find a way to include them. So I I developed that uh, elephant dispenser that uh, you're referring to um, to uh, help Again, find a way I can set it up outside of a care home or senior center just to help include them. How does this? How does it work? Describe it to me. So uh, the elephant dispenser—it's—it's it's essentially just a blue bin covered in duct tape with a couple lights on it, uh, and I um, put a light sensor that sticks to a window, and you shine a light at it, and it turns on a an auger. So, like I three D printed a uh, auger that sits inside a PVC pipe that gets funneled candy into it through the blue bin. And uh, when they shine the light at it, it'll just push candy out the trunk of the elephant and into the kid's uh, candy bag. Okay, that's genius. Uh, And what do you do for a living that you could just come up with this? (laughs) So, uh, well, I'm kind of a a hobbyist engineer, I guess you could say. My my experience is actually in uh, automotive electrical diagnostics and repair. Um, So I've been kind of building circuits, a few different little inventions for fun. Um, And again, uh, this... 
uh, this whole Halloween season, along with kind of my, my hobby of building electrical stuff, it just kind of mixed really well with, again, trying to find a way I could help the community a little bit. Um, and uh, also we're uh, posting stuff on YouTube as well, just to try to show people again what, what we can do. We started a channel called Redneck Engineer. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so so this would be like you could you could stay actually behind the window, right? Like you could actually stay inside, and as long as you shine a light on it, it will dispense the candy. Yeah, exactly. Like I I don't even need to actually go into the care home to install it. I can I can just set it up, uh, just raised up above, you know, where the kids can catch the candy in their uh, uh, candy bags. Um, and then I just stick the light sensor on the window. So as long as I have a flashlight or a lamp or, or just something that can just shine on that when the kids are there to get their candy, right. it'll dispense candy into the, the kids' bag. So I don't need to, again, even expose them uh, to me or, or expose myself uh, to, to them, just um, uh, able to kind of right. keep everybody safe during the installation, yeah. How popular has this been? You, um, you, may be, you must be getting really busy with this. Yes, I am. Uh, I've been losing a lot of sleep. I, I got three kids as well, uh, the youngest one being about nine months old. So uh, it's uh, been been pretty busy trying to make this work. But uh, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of attention so far. I've already been able to conscript a few people in the community to help me make more if there is an interest. Um, so I'm trying to reach out to the care homes right now to see how many of these uh, we should be making and installing. And hopefully we get you know really good feedback and we can put a few of these up and just include everybody in the trick-or-treating. That is so cool. So do you think it'll make people feel better if we kind of make sure that we have some kind of Halloween? Of course. I mean, it's it can be just as bad to, you know, uh, fear the pandemic to a point to that everybody's staying locked inside and not, not living life as, uh, you know, ignoring it's happening at all. So uh, I think we still have to find ways to, you know, go about having our, our life and let kids have some fun. As long as we do it right, we do it smart. And uh, we all work together and have yeah. a good understanding of each other. I love that. All right. So, Matt, once again, where can people find out more information about these amazing things you're coming up with? So uh, my YouTube channel is Redneck Engineer. Uh, they can go on there and I will be posting a video of this dispenser build later today, uh, along with a uh, fully automated dragon dispenser and a, a couple other little things me and my kids made. Yeah. So. I love it. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All right, that is Ladner Dad, Matt Reed, also a hobbyist engineer. You can find him on YouTube, uh, Redneck Engineer. Don't put engineering like I did, and you're going to go down this rabbit hole of all sorts of different videos. But no, no, Redneck Engineer, Matt Reed, and uh, he's got some amazing stuff. And you see the elaborate lengths that he has gone to to make sure that Halloween can happen for people safely in a distant fashion. It is amazing. So yeah, more people are going to enjoy themselves thanks to him. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we wanted to take a moment here this morning to highlight this amazing local initiative that has really blown up over the past year. It's called Vancouver Food Runners. They launched back in March, and since then, they have helped distribute almost 150,000 meals worth of food. So we thought, let's talk about this remarkable success and how they continue to grow. So the founder of Food Runners, Tristan Jagger, joins us now. Tristan, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, how did this get started? Well, um, it actually got started... um, Almost a year ago, I'm a mom of four young kids, and I saw a real need for um, families that didn't have food in Vancouver. Um, it's, it's grown substantially since COVID-19 has hit. We have charity partners that literally have 600 families waiting for food. Um, and I saw that there's a lot of surplus food left, and we wanted to match it with the charities that needed it. Okay, so how does that work then? What do you do? So we actually have an app called Vancouver Food Runners. You can go on to your Android or your Apple phone and download it. And what it does is it, it alerts the volunteers when um, a, a food rescue is available. So when we have matched uh, a food donor with a charity, it pops up on an app and you can just literally hit it with the click of a button and uh, take the food right to the charity. So what's like, uh, how does that come up then? So is it restaurants? Like who's donating the food? Yeah, so we have lots of different partners, um, restaurants, exactly, uh, bakeries, farms. So, you know, we have groups like Terra Bread, Pure Bread, Winsett Farms, Cobbs, Rosemary Rock Salt. They wow. all develop, they all, um, they all give us their surplus food. So we're so grateful to all of them. And so do you have to run around and pick it up or how does that work? 
Yeah, so um, we have about 357 volunteers right now on the app, and we're always looking for more volunteers. So um, the, the volunteers pick up the food and take it to the charity. So then charities have to sign up with you as well? Yeah, so we have a bit of an onboard program with the charities where we um, kind of figure out exactly what they need, like if it's meat or vegetables or dairy, and we make sure that the food that surplus is matched appropriately so they can take it and give it out to whoever needs it. I mean, Tristan, 350 volunteers since yeah. March. That's amazing. It really is. I mean, I was, Vancouver really, I mean, I was so blown away. We started with like 15 volunteers in March. Like People were just going crazy running around. And then all of a sudden word got out and we managed to gather about 350. And now we can't even keep a food rescue on our app. They're grabbing them so quickly. You're kidding. Okay, so then yeah. tell me about the supply then of that donated food. How has that mm-hmm. been? Yeah, so we've been super lucky to have some amazing food suppliers, like I mentioned, but we're definitely looking for more. So we are are really um, doing a campaign right now to try and get some more food suppliers. So anybody that has extra food in their restaurant, in their bakery, um, in their local grocery store, uh, we can easily upload that to the app, what's available, and we can send a volunteer right away or within the 24 hours to grab it and take it to the charity. Wow, Tristan, does it make you wonder, like, what was happening with all that food before? It really does. It really does. And that's what really got me thinking about starting this charity, because there's a lot of stats out there. Like, I think about 40% of food is wasted um, in, in Vancouver. And so if we could get that 40% to people that need that food, it made so much sense to me, especially since we all live so close together. And that's the real beauty of this app is, you know, drivers aren't driving for a lot of, like, huge long kilometers. Yeah. It's only about 15 Usually. So this, this must be a full-time job for you. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah it is. I just had a baby and oh, congratulations. Four, four kids. Um, and so, but you know what, this is really my passion. Like I just, I never want to see a kid go hungry in Vancouver with there's so much wealth around us. So it's really important to me to, yeah, try and get, get, it, get, get this word out here that, yeah, any surplus food, send it our way. <laughs> it sounds like you are doing an amazing job here. So, uh, so essentially what you need is more, like, do you need to, is it, does it have to be a commercial operation? then that contacts no, you to donate food absolutely not like we have lots of family run um like bakeries like moore's bakery and carousel for example they give us their leftover bread cobb's bakery um or we go into like winset farm sends in produce for us so we can pick up any of their extra vegetables and fruits and same with fresh direct um it could be any it can be anything anybody that has extra food basically we will pick it up and that's the really cool thing about this model they're all um we all have they're all cars it's not big trucks picking up food so we can go into anywhere and pick it up and we'll pick up small amounts big amounts um anything really (laughs) okay so and you also need more volunteers so what's the average kind of how much the contribution does an average volunteer have to make well, this is, you know, this is what's what, another really amazing part was what I found about this app is that it can be as little or as much as you want. You can literally volunteer once a week or you could volunteer once a month. You can just pull up the app and see what food rescue is available, let's say, on your way home from work. And then that's your volunteering for the month, let's say, or the year even. Yeah. Or you can set up, we can set up a weekly rescue where you every Tuesday at 11 a.m., you know that you're going to pick up your food at Cobbs and take it to the YWCA, for example. Okay, that's amazing. So where can mm-hmm. people find more information to just help you out? Yeah, thank you. Um, they can go onto our website, www.vancouverfoodrunners.com. Um, we also are on Instagram under the same name. And um, the app, they can just sign up for the app and they'll see all the information there. They can actually see food rescues available today (laughs) and take them. We'll have to take a look at that. Listen, Tristan, thank you and good luck with this. What a great job you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the call. Well, anything you need for help, we are there for you. That is Tristan Jagger, who's the founder of Food Runners. Check them out online, VancouverFoodRunners.com. Also, you can download their app, but they need some more volunteers. If if you were thinking that, you know what, I'd like to do some volunteer work, This is a great way to do this because you can do it during your regular commute or when you have a few minutes, but just picking up food and dropping it off, super easy, but also such a great contribution. So check that out and see how you can help.